in our in our culture the more traditional uh, Christmas story, and so we'll we'll read that together and uh, enjoy that together next week. So this is kind of the last um, um, the last message in our our God with us series. You remember we started with this concept that that uh, from Isaiah that that we use all the time. Advent, they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we talked the first week about this idea that Jesus Christ was eternally, always, and forever existent in every direction, going back and and forward as the second person of the Trinity, the the Son of God, uh, co-equal with the Father, same in in substance, uh, unified in... um, in, in thought, in power, there was nothing about him, uh, nothing about Jesus that he needed to desire or needed to, to want to make him God. We talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he was the exact imprint of, of the Father's nature. Um, we talked about in, in Philippians, it said he considered equality with God, nothing that he had to grasp after. He was God. He was very God of very God. We talked about... Um, a little bit about how through the history of the churches they were discovering revelation as, as it happened to them and discussing them that the um, there were great um, uh, what were called ecumenical councils. The church got together to discuss what was their theology, what was their right belief, and uh, they came to the idea, just as we said, that that Jesus was was God. In fact, even a, a term that we think of largely as a, a Catholic term was not originally a Catholic term, but coming out of this original council, they ran into the streets shouting, Mary is the mother of God. Mary is the mother of God. In in Catholic practice, that's taken on a different meaning uh, and taken on veneration even of Mary and the exaltation of Mary. But actually, at the time it was said, coming out of the council, their excitement was, Mary is not just the mother of 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 a human, she's the mother of the one who is God. And so it was an affirmation coming out of the councils that this Jesus was God. We talked about uh, the fun Christmas fact of, of St. Nicholas, who uh, over and against the Arians, who, who claimed that, that uh, 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 various things about God, that, that Jesus was not a, a deity, that Jesus was not God, but he took on forms with the impression he looked like God, various different things they claimed. We talked about how St. Nicholas encountered an Arian, the Arians claiming Jesus was not God. St. Nicholas uh, delivered his first present uh, with an uppercut to the face uh, of, of the Arian. We talked about, about that. So Jesus is God, and we talked about then, we also talked about last week how he was God in the flesh. John uh, 1 uh, 14, and the Word became flesh. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That's week one. Jesus is God. Week two, and the Word became flesh. We talked about how how Jesus came in, in humanity. He came in physicality. He was touchable. And we talked about in history, even though this is not much debated in our time, the debate was not whether Jesus was God, but whether he was human. That's why John, in the, in the book of First John, writes to, uh, to, uh, um, to uh, 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 a developing or very early form of Gnosticism. They claimed that Jesus was just some sort of spirit, something else, but he couldn't have been in flesh because flesh was evil. Now, they do have a point in, the, in when they say that most human flesh is evil, but in fact, this is why Jesus comes, right? And so 
John writes in, in 1 John, this Jesus whom we have seen with our eyes, whom we have heard with our ears, whom we have touched. The idea is that Jesus was a man, and he was a human man. And so in, in, in Jesus, the, 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 his natures are perfectly melded, perfectly, um, and, and I would say even mysteriously uh, made so that he is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He lacks for nothing in either column, right? And we said that is important for a reason, and the reason is what we get to this morning, right? So Emmanuel means that he's God and he's with he becomes flesh, and the last part is us. So what is the mission that Jesus meant to accomplish? What is the mission that Jesus was sent on by the Father? Why does the Advent happen, and why does the Advent need to happen? Why does God need to show up physically and humanly on, on the scene? And so we're going to begin this morning then in uh, Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to deal with this concept. Uh, it's not a spoiler. It's, in fact, in the title of the series. The reason he does that is because of us, right? So then the question is how, why, what, those kinds of things. We'll begin at verse 4 of chapter 4 of, of Galatians, which says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, what is Jesus looking to accomplish? How is he looking to accomplish it? Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. What that means is this, is that at just the right time, at precisely the right moment, we don't, um, any specula- speculation about why exactly and, and when that was the right time when God decided to send Jesus would be just that. 100% speculative. We We don't really... No, we can speculate various reasons, but they, they're, not, um, they're not determined. They, they don't help us that much. What we really need to understand, though, is that God in his wisdom and God in, in his, his sovereignty decided that this was the right time in history for Jesus to show up on the planet and also suggests, as we've talked about before, that the Father is working a, a plan, and he's, in fact, been working a plan from the beginning. So we talked about how... Um, how in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And we talked about how in God's creation, the heavens and the earth, that Jesus himself is, is there as a member of the Trinity and that, that first creation uh, a process, that, that Jesus is there even from, from creation. Jesus is, is always existent, right? Let's not forget that he always is. That speaks to his to the fact that he's God. But we also know, going forth from Genesis 1, that the man and the woman that God puts in a garden, are going to decide to sin against him. They're going to decide to sin against God in hopes of becoming like God or in hopes of, of even usurping God. It is the, the original sin that takes place in the heart probably before the apple or, or the fruit, I guess we, uh, we should say, before the fruit is even touched, right? The man and the woman decide, oh, we want to be gods too. That'll be awesome. And they take the fruit, they eat the fruit immediately after opening or eating the fruit. Their eyes are opened and they discover that they're, they are naked. They run away and they hide in the bushes because they hear the, the presence of God coming in the garden and calling for them. Adam, Eve, where are you? And they go and hide. God calls them out and says, why are you hiding? And they say, we were hiding because we realized we are naked and we were ashamed. 
They, the shame is introduced into the situation. They realize that, that they are naked. At that point, God is going to do a host of different things. One of those things is he's going to tell them that they have to leave the garden. Another one of those things is that he's going to introduce curses into, their, into the relationship. He says to the man, you're going to toil all your days. You're going to work just as you have before, but now your work is going to be filled with, with briars and thistles and, and weeds. It's going to get harder to work. He says to, to the woman, now childbirth, you are going to have pain in, in, in childbirth. And I would think that that even extends. It's not in the birthing process, but there, there's pain in the parenting process too. All of these things are added in. He says to the serpent though, when he comes to curse the serpent, he says, because you have done this, meaning because you have been uh, used by, by uh, Satan in, in this way, because you have done this, you are cursed and will crawl on your belly all of your days. And you will nip at the heels of her offspring, but her offspring will crush your head. We call this the Proto-Evangelion, or the first preaching of, of the gospel. It's in the first uh, couple chapters of the first book of the, of the Bible, into the introduction of human history right after the fall. When the fall happens and men and women encounter separation from God, God does not, does not run from man, but he comes to man, and he introduces to them this fact, that one day he is going to restore or make right all things through the offspring of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? The first preaching of the good news, that one day the offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Evil will be overcome. But it's not just that. He does does another thing, and it's been fun. Uh, We're doing a discovery Bible study, uh, some of us on, uh, on Tuesday nights, and this really hit us when we were going through the first part of that, is that the next thing he does then is because the man and the woman, because shame has been introduced into the situation, because their sinfulness is causing for them shame, the next thing he does is he kills an animal, meaning that where sin happens, sacrifice has to happen. He kills an an animal, he takes the, the, the skin of the animal, and he makes for them clothing to cover their shame. That's also a preaching of the gospel. Because Jesus is not only going to overcome Satan one day, but he is, in, in, in him, going to overcome the shame of our sinfulness and cover for our, our shame. And so the point I'm, I'm trying to make here, though, is simply this, that in the first book of the Bible, in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, already we can see that God is at work, beginning to work to carry out a plan to rescue mankind from their own sinfulness. God was not content that you be forever and totally and always separated from him. He could have been, by the way. He's God. It's his creative right as the maker of mankind, as the maker of, of, of people like us, to look at Adam and Eve and say, because you have done this, I will wipe out this planet. I'll, 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 take, I'll get rid of this planet. I'll start over. Or maybe this human thing doesn't really work for me. I will not. He's God. He, he has that right. But for his own sake and his own name, remember we just came out of Isaiah. I am God. My glory I will share with no other for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his glory. And because his love is for you is glorious, he decided that he would not destroy you. He decided that he would not wipe you out, right? And he could have wiped you out before you were ever a, a thought, Right? He could have, Adam and Eve, gone, that's not going to work and wiped out. But God, from the beginning of time, in the human sense, decides that he is going to carry out a plan that does not wipe out humankind, but restores humankind to relationship and friendship with the God of the Bible. And that starts in, in Genesis, but it doesn't just 
start or doesn't stop in, in Genesis because it goes into the next part of, of the scripture. So, it, or it doesn't stop in the the first few chapters of Genesis because you go later in, in Genesis. You get into uh, chapters 12, chapters 15, chapters 17. We encounter a man named Abraham, and when we encounter Abraham, God shows up to Abraham. Abraham's just a just a dude out there worshiping multiple gods, doing his own thing, and God shows up on the scene and says, "Hi, my name." is Yahweh. I'm going to be your God now. Stop worshiping all other gods. You are mine now. And so God call, goes and he calls this dude named Abraham. He calls Abraham and, Abram and tells Abram he will be his. Tells Abram, stop worshiping all those other gods. My name is Yahweh. There's none other. There's no God who can compare to me. There's no God who does what I do. There's no God with the power I have. I am the creator God, right? I am the God with the big G. Everything else has a little G and is not real. So God shows up on the scene, introduces himself to Abram. Eventually he'll change his name to Abraham, but importantly for for what we think about, God enters into a relationship with Abraham and with his people that we call a covenant. He enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham. Again, you could read about this in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17. It's all there. But essentially, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is he says, Listen, Abraham, you are going to follow me. I am going to be your God, and I am going to bless you. But not only am I going to bless you, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Because your offspring will be as many as the stars. And through your offspring, the, the, the world is going to be saved. The plan's good. So he introduces a covenant, uh, covenant there and tells him again, your offspring will be as many as the stars. Your offspring will be as many as the stars. Your offspring will be as many as the stars. And he tells him again that through his offspring, salvation will come, come to the planet. And then it doesn't stop there. I mean, that, that covenant, what he says there is so important. The idea that through the offspring of Abraham, his offspring will be as many as the stars and, and, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed is what it says. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. It doesn't just stop there, even though that's, that's beautiful. Right? He says to him essentially, Abraham, I'm making you a people. And by making you a people and making you essentially your people, the, the, the sons of God on earth, as, as scripture often refers to Israel as sons, by making you the, the sons of God, I'm going to rescue you, but not only you, but through this covenant and through this relationship, I'm going to rescue everybody because all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? That idea is there in Genesis, the first books of the Bible. It's there by Genesis chapter 12. It's, it's there. And so, but it, it, it continues on and it just doesn't stop there. So we get into narratives. We get into other things. We get into this idea of the introduction of the law, right? So, so things get out of control because when, when sin enters into the, into the world, what happens is that people start to live under the rule and the reign and the terror of sin. And so people are living under that rule and that reign. And God, seeing this, decides that for his people, he will give them something that mitigates the worst of that. He will give them something that protects them from that. And so he introduces them to the law. And he gives them a law and says, here is how my people, and here's how the people in my nation, here is how my sons will behave. Here are the rules of our family, so to speak. And he gives that to them. Now, in giving that to them, and that's exemplified all over, there's more laws, uh, there's laws all over Scripture. So you have the law in Deuteronomy, you have laws in Leviticus, you have um, the law in, in the way that we would think about in a, in a, a um, 
a convinced or summary form in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, right? We have these laws, and the laws are protective for the community. Here are these laws. Obey them, right? And he gives those to them, and it's at once loving because God is not willing to walk away from mankind. But at the same time, there's going to be a problem we'll get to in a minute. But first off, it's loving because the community needed to know how to behave. If you read the laws, what you realize is it helps them live in community. It helps them live better. It helps them live in a, in a better place. Uh, I hear sometimes people talk about anarchy, not as much as I used to, but when, uh, when I was younger and in high school, some people would say, what we need is anarchy. We need no government, no law. The problem with anarchy is, is that other people get to be anarchist too. Anarchy works very well if you're the only one. I will live lawlessly, right? Which means I will do what I want. And doing what you want is really fun. Except for other people do what they want too, and that comes into conflict, and it does not work. And even then, when you do what you want, that would be great if there were no consequences from doing what you want, but there are consequences from doing what you want. You name the fun thing that you're going to do because you want to do it, and I will tell you the consequence of doing that fun thing, right? People say, well, I just want to have have unfettered unfettered sex, right? Unfettered sex seems great, but I'm a child of the 80s. You know what happened with unfettered sex? A disease called AIDS. It's killed millions around the globe. It's killing millions in Africa still today. It is the result of, of, of living in a way that says, anarchy's great. I'll do what I want. Doing what you want has consequences. People say, well, I just want to, I want to have unfettered fun, so I'm going to do drugs and alcohol, and it's going to be great. It is never great, right? I have friends who are, who are unfortunately great users of alcohol, and what they say to me all the time is this, I know this looks fun, man, but I hate it. I just can't stop, right? They're addicted to it, and you try and speak life into it, and you try and speak joy, but they don't get it, right? All I'm saying is you can say anarchy, 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 but living in a place that is, is full of anarchy has consequences, and those consequences are always dire, and those consequences always hurt. My point here is that God is at work from the beginning of human history to rescue us and save us and to care about our own good, and sometimes we don't think about the law being given for our own good. We think that it's given for our own... Oh, why you got to be so mean, God? Why you got to be so mean? Here's the thing i've seen in our own culture people who live lawlessly right and i am uh because of the generation i grew up in i have seen one of the i feel like uh one of the most lawless generations out there great uh turnover and upheaval in in our um our culture at the time and so i've seen that most of my friends have grown up in homes without fathers or they've grown up in homes with rampant divorce. I would even say it's actually my generation rampant divorce. Currently we live in a, we are trying to, we are sitting in the car talking to our kids and we are saying, which of your friends has dads who live in the home? Which of them? They, we could come up with one amongst all my children's friends who have a dad living in the home. That is the result of anarchy in a culture that says, God, why you gotta make all those rules? We can do what we want. We'll sleep with who we want. We'll we'll marry or not marry who we want, when we want, do what we want. And the result is rampant divorce, rampant fatherlessness, rampant children growing up without someone to express this basic idea to them that your daddy loves you, not perfectly, but your daddy loves you because his daddy, the heavenly father, loves him. And he is trying to be like the father to you, right? We're growing up with generations that are never encountering the idea that God the father is a good father because they don't have any fathers. 
We have, I've encountered this before. I remember a situation where one of our football players was, was, uh, they were, there was a group of our football players standing together and they got into some sort of just verbal argument and they're like, and someone said, ah, oh, Justin don't know his daddy. A whole group of African American youth. Justin don't know his daddy. And one of the other ones said, ah, oh, man, no black boy knows his daddy. No black kid knows his daddy. That is, frankly, a very true statement in most of our culture, right? That's happening like crazy. Come with me to Godwin Heights. I will demonstrate that to you over and over and over again. I will introduce you to young men who do not know their fathers, many of whom who have never met their fathers, some of whom have met their fathers, but their fathers aren't in their life, some of whom whose fathers are in their life to show up long enough to do an AAU basketball thing with them, but they are not with their mothers, loving their mothers, leaving their home, right? So what I'm saying is we live in a time of chaos, our culture can be described as social anarchy. We will do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And frankly, it is not working. And anyone who could look at me with a straight face and say, it's fine, it's working, that person is a liar. They know that this isn't working. Look at the culture. Tell me that is better off. Walk into the schools with me and tell me that this is a beautiful situation. Young men growing up with no sense of what it means to be a man because they've never had one in their life. You want to know why we have gang fights? You want to know why we have gang shootings? We want to, you want to know why people puff out their chest and try and act like that? It's because they have no clue what it is to be a man. They don't have any idea what it is to be a man. And the reason they don't know what it is to be a man is because there aren't any men in their homes. There's no daddies. And that's just one example to make this point that when God gives the law, he is not reaching out to steal from people fun. He is introducing them to the idea that he has ways and his ways are better than our ways. And when you ignore the ways of God, bad things happen. And frankly, that is what all of mankind and all of humankind has done. But, uh, but, so we can continue on. I'll simply say this. God introduces the first preaching of the gospel in, in Genesis. He introduces the covenant with Abraham that the blessing was coming in Genesis. He introduces the law, uh, in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He introduces rules, not because he's out to get mankind, but he said this can be a better way. And yet the reality of all humankind and all mankind, even in the giving of the law, is this, is that Humankind was never able to live up to it. And God in his wisdom and God in his goodness knows this too. He knows that the Ten Commandments thrown up in a political situation and declared as the way to be. It's just not enough because the reality is is that humankind in its brokenness, the law was given and it could mitigate like certain situations, but frankly, everybody who ever lived was going to break that law. Everybody who ever lived was going to look at the law and go, yeah, I know that if I followed that law, it'd probably be better for me, but I want what I want, what I want, what I want. And so God, in, in his goodness, even though he gives the law, he continues to, to reach out to the nation of Israel. He continues to love on them. He continues to come to them. It's all throughout Scripture. But then he also sends to them prophets, right? And the prophets come on the scene. And largely what the prophets do is point out this. Hey, Israel, you're doing an awful job at following the law. By the way, there's coming someone someday to rescue you, right? And that's what breaks down the prophets. They might not have even understood in that that context, but that's what the prophets do. The prophets declare this, you're lawbreakers. But there's coming one day, one, who's going to make this all right. There's law, so we, we, 
we went through uh, Isaiah, the first and the second half, over the period of, I don't know, that probably took us three years by the time we started to the time we finished, and we just did parts of But the idea that you get in Isaiah all the time is this, is that the people whom Isaiah prophesies to are lawbreakers. But there's coming one who's going to make all things right. And that's, that's what the prophets do. And that's not just something that happens in Isaiah. That's something that happens in, in, in Malachi. It happens when you read what's going on in, in Daniel. It happens what, when you read what's happening in Joel. It, it happens when you read what's happening in, 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 in Micah. It, it's all the, the prophets have this message. You're lawbreakers. You're lawbreakers. Here's the law. Come back to, come back to God. And, and the biggest issue, the biggest law most of history, most of humankind ever broke was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? That's, Jesus will one day summarize the law and says, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And that's the one that most of humankind continuing always breaks again and again and again and again. And so... Sometimes we go, well, I'm not like that. I don't have any gods because if we read the Old Testament, we read about them doing silly things by constructing golden calves, right? Uh, Moses goes up a mountain to actually talk with the living God, like he's going to have an actual conversation with the real God. And while he is away, the people at the bottom of the mountain find all the gold in their camp and they melt it down and make their own God to worship, right? And to me, for the life of me, I cannot figure that out. I go, what kind of foolishness and what kind of hilarity is this that they went, you know what? We really need something to worship. We need a God. Earrings, everybody. Bring them in and melt that down. Like, like at what point did you, did they not say, hmm, if we're making this thing out of gold and we're making them probably not the best God we can worship, right? What, what's going on in their minds when they do that? It seems so silly, right? But I think that silliness needs to be brought into our own culture because if you think about the things you worship, they are no sillier than a golden calf, right? That's the problem with us. We are quick to see the silliness and the behavior of other people and so slow to see our own silliness, right? Because frankly, who do I worship every morning? I don't worship a golden calf. But at various times, I have worshipped a... a uh, uh, Honolulu blue and silver athlete, right? At various times I have worshipped an oblong ball. At various times I have worshipped, worshipped, uh, worshipped uh, a gaggle of children that are my own, that I pr- produced, right? I can make a list and at the end of the day what I worship is no less silly than a golden calf. Because what I ultimately worship when I walk into my bathroom and I turn to my left there is a giant mirror. We have a new bathroom, and it's a really big mirror, right? And sometimes really big mirrors are good, and sometimes they're really bad. But the thing about really big mirrors is you can see yourself way better. And what I see when I look into the really big mirror is the really big God that I always worship. And when I say really big, I do not mean in the holy sense. I mean in the sense that I have a weight problem, which is another thing that I worship, which is food. And if you want to talk about stupid things to worship, when you look yourself in the face and realize that what you really worship is a pizza, you need to stop for a minute and realize you probably shouldn't critique people who worship golden calves too much. Right? So I look in the mirror and I realize that that's who I worship. That's my God. How dumb is it to worship the very thing? The realization that you need a God, that you need a salvation, that you are made to worship comes from the fact that you realize deep down in your actions that you're sinful. People want to claim that you get that you're sinful. You know that you do bad. I don't encounter many people 
who are like, no, I never sin, and I'm completely happy with myself. I don't meet those people. I meet people who know that they sin. I meet people who know that they do wrong. I meet all kinds of people who will make all kinds of excuses to not submit to and not worship the God of Scripture, and yet they will walk into uh, into the bathroom, look into the mirror, and address their God. That's who they worship. And the silly thing is, if they thought about it, the reason they need a God is because they know that that person in the mirror has no ability, no power to save them. And so, starting in Genesis, going through the law, going through the, through the prophets, going through all of it is is this strain that there is coming one day salvation. There's coming salvation. There's coming salvation. Abraham's seed is going to come to earth and or is going to come. And when Abraham's seed, when the offspring of Abraham comes, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament has that. And it goes from, from Genesis to the last book of the Old Testament. And it speaks the last words of the Old Testament. And then, boom, nothing for 400 years. Silence. Yahweh's been sending prophets. Yahweh's been sending people to say things. Yahweh's been sending, they're written down for us, and Yahweh has spoken. But all of a sudden, Yahweh says, I'm not going to speak anymore. For 400 years, there's silence. We call this the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Yahweh doesn't speak. So, I don't know what the people thought. I don't even know if the people realized. I don't know, but Yahweh doesn't speak. We have no testament of Yahweh saying anything to the people. And we don't know why, really. All we know is this, is that Yahweh, from the beginning, from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, has been saying, there's coming something, there's coming something, there's been coming something. He said it in Genesis. The prophet said it again and again. The time will be right. And so for 400 years, he says nothing. But we can only assume that in his, that in his goodness, his wiseness, and his knowledge, he was waiting for the moment to be just right. 400 years, he says nothing. The next time he speaks, he speaks with the voices the next time he speaks, he speaks with the voice of a child in a manger. 400 years, nothing. And the next time Yahweh speaks, he speaks in the cry of a child. He speaks first in prophecies. He sends a prophecy to, to, um, to the parents of John the Baptist. He, he sends a prophecy to Mary. He sends an angel to Joseph. But all of that is, is stuff that surrounds the core of the story. That the next time Yahweh is going to speak in any huge way, he speaks to the cry of a baby. The first writings we see after the end of the intertestamental period, the first time we see, see Revelation written down, he speaks with the genealogy. And people go, genealogy is fun. Like, I don't know about you, but in my personal devotional time, uh, I will be honest, there have been times when I have skipped over or not been as attentive to the genealogies I read in Scripture as other parts, especially if they're Old Testament genealogies, because um, those are written in a language I do not speak, right? So, I, but all of a sudden God speaks, and he speaks in a genealogy, why? Because the genealogy is meant to establish that the God who speaks now is the same God who spoke before. 
when he promised that Abraham's offspring would come. When he promises elsewhere in Scripture, in, in, in Isaiah, it says he will be born in Nazareth. They say the, the root of Jesse will be born in Nazareth. Right? Nazareth is a word that means branch. The branch. The Nazareth of Jesse will be born in Nazareth. Here he is. He's spoken. And the reason he opens with the genealogy in Matthew, this person begat this person who begat this person who begat this person who begat King David who begat this person who begat this person who begat this person who was the father of Mary who was the mother of Jesus. Right? Starts with a, a genealogy. And the reason why is to establish that the God who has not spoken for 400 years is prepared and ready to speak again. And when he speaks, he does not come with a new message. He comes with the fulfillment of the same old message. That there is coming one who will bless all the nations of the earth. I say all of that to say this. We cannot speculate why this was the right time. But we have to say that at the fullness of time to come, God's been working a plan from Genesis to Jesus. And this is what happened. So in the same, um, but when the fullness of time had come, when that moment, when God chooses to speak, he spoke through, he spoke in Genesis, he spoke through covenants to Abraham, he spoke through the giving of the law to the community, he spoke through the prophets, come back to God, there's coming one who will come, there's coming a great prophet, there's coming a great Messiah, there's coming a great one, there is coming one who will be salvation to all the people. When he speaks these messages, he speaks them again and again and again, and he speaks both, both um, confrontation and hope to them but the hope that he spoke to them he spoke to them he spoke to them and he speaks it from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament when the Old Testament ends and he says nothing for 400 years he wants to affirm that when he speaks again this is the same story and I don't know why but in the fullness of time from Genesis to the end of those 400 years then the fullness of time had come The fullness of time had come to do what? At the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's Jesus, right? We talked about this, eternally existent as the second person of the Trinity. Eternally existent from the beginning of time at creation. Eternally existent in everything that God has done at all times. And yet, when he speaks, when he speaks, when when Jesus is at, at, when we see Jesus in Genesis, we see him creating. When we see... uh, Jesus later on, uh, in various times where we have these appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, we see him do things like, like wrestling with, with Jacob. We see him doing different things. But we, we know from Scripture that he is active with the Father. And he's active in heaven. So he's active in inspiring the prophets. He's active in, in, in all of that. He's active in, in loving on the people. He is God the Father. But the next time we hear from him after the prophets, he is the one born of a woman. He goes from speaking the very words of Scripture to crying the words of an infant. That is this Jesus. So he sent his one, God sent forth his son. How? Born of a woman. And we'll talk about that more in, in, in next week when we go through, through the narrative. But he's born of a woman. He's born of, of Mary. He is born under the law. We talked about the law. Here's the thing. We talked about the law is good, that the law regulates and the law protected. But another fact about the law is none of us can keep it. 
And if you can't keep the law, if you can't keep the law on, on a level that would make you perfect in your obedience to the law, if you're at, uh, if you could be at no point in your life a lawbreaker, then you would have no need of Jesus. But the reality is, the law has another purpose. One purpose of the law was to regulate the community. But another purpose of the law was to confirm in the community their need of a Savior. Because they did not at any point keep the law well or perfectly. And you do not at any point keep the law well or perfectly. And in fact, the law becomes to a person who has not encountered this one, this Jesus, becomes condemnation uh, and nothing else because you're not a law keeper. So God sent forth the son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why do you have to be born under the law? Because the laws, right? These are God's laws. These are God's ways. Salvation is caught up in this. You want to be saved? It's very simple. Keep all of the law. Never break any of the law. And when I say very simple, I mean it's a very simple sentence to say that has never been fulfilled, never come true in any human under the sun on this planet ever except for one, this one. Jesus comes and he keeps the law. Why? Because our salvation is caught up in the one who could keep the law on our behalf. He is born under the law to keep the law, to redeem those who were born under the law and could not do it. To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. So why does he come? Why does Jesus come in the flesh? He comes in the flesh because there had to be one who kept God's laws. There had to be one who kept God's laws in a way that he was worthy of salvation. Right? Jesus is worthy of salvation. Why? He keeps the law perfectly. He's the only one who's ever been worthy of salvation. Every other one of us is conceived in sin. From our fathers, we receive sinfulness. That's what we get. We're conceived in sin. We live out sin. We break the law. We do wrong. And thus, we are, we are due and worthy only of condemnation through, from the Father. But there had to be one who came and kept it. Jesus is born of a woman. God is his Father. And because of that, he is not born in sin. And neither does he live his life in sin. He never sins. He keeps the law perfectly. Why? On our behalf. So that... When there becomes the need for a sacrifice under the law, remember, uh, we didn't talk about the sacrificial system, but it's also implemented to tell this story, right? When the sacrificial system, the lamb is killed. Why is the lamb killed? The lamb is killed as a sacrifice. Why? To symbolize something that is pure, being sacrificed for something that isn't. The lamb is not the point. Jesus is the point. What is the lamb trying to say? The lamb is trying to say Jesus. In every lamb sacrifice, the point of the lamb was Jesus. It's preaching a message. We talk about communion being a physical proclamation of a message. The lamb is a physical proclamation of this message. The lamb symbolizes that which has done no wrong, that which is pure, sacrificed and slaughtered for that which does only wrong. That is not pure. So, here comes Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He comes and He lives the law perfectly. He is not sinful. He keeps the law on our behalf to rescue us, we who are law breakers. Why does it matter that God came in the flesh? Because you need rescued in your flesh. The Gnostics were wrong. The flesh is not inherently bad and inherently evil. The flesh is corrupted by sin. But it was created good, and it was created not evil. God created us in flesh with the purpose of using our flesh for His glory, His honor, and His praise. We affirm that there's coming a day at the second advent, when Jesus comes again, when He will make the heavens 
in the earth new. When he does that, he will not take from you your flesh. He will take from you your sin and give back to you the fullness of your flesh so that you can live in your flesh, do whatever you want to do and have each of those things that you do be perfectly and wonderfully praiseworthy and glorifying of Jesus. Which is not an affirmation of what you desire to do, but an affirmation of the fact that when Jesus comes, you will no longer have wrong affections and your body will no longer do wrong things. You were made to glorify God in the body. He comes to redeem you in your body because he is going to not take us from a different place. He is not deviating from the original plan. He is going to restore us to a new heaven, a new earth, to worship of him in our flesh. And in our spirit, he has to come in the flesh because he needs to rescue us in the flesh. He's not rescuing disembodied souls. We are not some people who sit and meditate on what of the spirit. We are not people who go, oh, the body doesn't matter. It's just what you think, high-minded stuff, right? People always say the body doesn't matter until someone wants to cut them, right? Body doesn't matter. Body matters when someone tries to punch you, though, right? Body matters when you stub your toe. Body matters when you cut your finger, Right? The body matters. The body matters. And sin had corrupted it, but Jesus is coming to restore it. So he comes in the flesh to restore people in the flesh. And, and, and our problem is that we have made such a dichotomy between who we are. We think of ourselves as souls who have a body instead of bodies with souls and all of us belonging to God the Father. You in the flesh and you in the soul are not two different things. God wants to rescue all of you. He comes in the flesh to do it born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Um, There's a lot of really good stuff in there that I love, but I want to just skip to heir really quick. So here's what happens in in sort of Greek-Roman adoptions, right? In a Greek-Roman adoption, uh, it it was not like we do when um, we might adopt an infant or we might adopt a a younger, younger child, um, to provide for them a, a home. In this kind of adoption, what often happened is people would adopt an adult to make them their heir. They had no offspring, but they said, who would I want to be my heir? Who would I want to receive my business, my money, my my, my home? And so they would adopt a, an adult and make them the heir, the one who received all the blessings of the life that they had lived before them, which is which is only slightly different, and we don't need to really plumb the differences in that. But here's, here's what I want you to catch from this. And so Jesus comes in the, in the flesh to make us sons and daughters of God so that we can be declared his heirs. We get to receive everything that God has. So elsewhere it says we're co-heirs with Christ, right? He's, he's made you his offspring. The the Jewish understanding of, of Scripture at the time, right? The, the Jewish people would understand that they were his offspring by virtue of their fleshly relationship to Abraham. We get everything in Yahweh because we're related to Abraham by blood. The introduction then of, of this is because of who Paul's writing to at Galatians and because of what he's dealing with is a direct response to that saying, but yeah, your blood relationship to Abraham is is not enough because God in his in his plan is going to adopt 
his errors. I, I've told people this before. In fact, my, my adopted son likes to bring this up often. But in ancient times, an adopted son was viewed as more valuable than a born son, than a son born to you. Because in the case of a born son, well, that son was just born to you, but you didn't get to choose, right? You didn't get to choose. But in an adopted son, because, the, because of when they're chosen, how they're, how they're chosen, they're chosen. So they, they become more valuable in ancient times than a son uh, a son born to them. They're chosen. They're, they're the adopted ones. And so, um, before you get big-headed, God did not choose you in that sense, right? Like, hey, look at that Dave Drake. I'm going to choose him as an adult. He's pretty awesome. No, he didn't. Like, like, you were not the first person picked for the kickball team. You know, you were not, like, the most awesome. You're not the most popular. God chose you based upon his own will and his own glory and his own goodness. And you need to remember that Scripture's clear that there was nothing good about you, nothing worthy about you. But I, I make this point simply to say this, is that, that Paul is contrasting the idea that people saying, well, we get to be God's offspring because we're Abraham's blood. And God said, no, these are God's offspring because they're Yahweh's adopted ones. And Yahweh's adopted ones get to be heirs. And what are they heirs of? They're heirs of all things through Jesus. And you ask yourself, what does Jesus receive? Well, he receives, he's the, he's the one who scripture says, to him is all the honor, to him is all the glory, to him are all things forever and ever. Amen. And so what we sometimes say is that as you read scripture, what you come to realize is, is, that, is that Jesus is the true Israel in scripture. And because he's the true Israel in Scripture, he's the true recipient of all the promises of Scripture. Interestingly enough, because he's also God, he's also the true fulfillment of all the promises in Scripture. So Jesus comes, and he's the fulfillment and the recipient of all promises in Scripture, so that every promise given is fulfilled in him, the true Israel, so that all of us would be heirs of him, heirs of Christ, or heirs with Christ, and heirs of the blessing of God, receive all the blessings of Scripture in Jesus, inasmuch as you are in Jesus. You are his offspring. You are an heir. You are Abraham's child. That's the thrust of what what Paul is saying there. So why does he come in the flesh? comes to rescue people in the flesh. He comes to restore your flesh. He comes to call you back to himself in, in the flesh. He comes to, to meet the, the demands of there had to be a sacrificial lamb to take the wrath of God, and he did it in his, in his flesh. <laughs> for, for all of creation, right? From the time of Genesis, God speaks. At Abraham, God speaks. There's prophets. They speak again and again and again. All of a sudden, boom, there's like 400 years where God says nothing, and everybody must be like, will God speak again, right? Will he, will he speak? Is he? Does he have anything to say? And when he speaks again, the way in which he speaks was so shocking to everybody that, that many of them just outright rejected it. How could it be that one born in Nazareth? Isn't that boy from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Who's he? Who does he think he is? And yet, here we sit in the year 2015. And I think most of us realize that this man, this Jesus, is our only hope. That he is truly the fulfillment of scripture. They, they rejected him in his own time and they rejected him in his own time because that was his own plan. And when they reject him, they send him to crucifixion because that was his plan. And they send him to die in the flesh because that was his plan. All of that so that 
we could sit here in 2015 so that people can sit here a thousand years from now should the should the second advent not happen, right? Yeah. So that people from all time and all history can come and know that this is the one. This is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's the rescuing one. Born of a virgin. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Died and was buried. And on the third day rose again. That is the creedal affirmation of the truth of what we are talking about. That is why God came in the flesh. To rescue people like us. It's hard as a... um, as a follower of Jesus, to to separate Advent from Easter, right? And I know a lot of times people really like Advent, so let's celebrate sweet little baby Jesus in our modern reconstruction of how he is in, in the manger with the sweet songs and the no crying he makes and stuff, right? And we want to separate that from from beaten up, beaten senseless, whipped, bleeding, crucified, naked, hanging on a cross, Jesus. But... The incarnation happens with a purpose, and the purpose is a cross. So they're they're really inseparable. But he came in the flesh to be God with us. Because in being with us, he could be for us. And in being for us, he could rescue us so that we could be with him. In the flesh, in the fullness of who we are, so that we might know the God of scripture so we might know the God of history so we might know the God of everything that is so that we might be saved this is why he is God with us I think I had on there sometimes it take too long at other parts but I had on there John 3.16 just throw it there right right here's the most most known Bible verse in history I think right this shows up at football games <laughs> John 3.16 in the the end zone. But it says simply this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We think of this as a common verse. There's a reason it's so popular. That is the truth of Scripture and the truth of the incarnation wound up in one verse. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son should not perish but have eternal life. Why does he come in the flesh? So that we could have eternal life. That's good news. That's, that's really good Advent good news.